This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, I'm Craig Parkinson, and this is the Two Shot Podcast. Pop the kettle on and let's dive in. Yes, it's Thursday and we are back. This is the Two Shot Podcast and I'm Craig Parkinson. Now, I've got a question for you. How do you go from a working class town in the northwest of England to directing an Oscar winner's words on Broadway via directing hit shows in the West End? Well, that's the question. I'm going to find the answer out in today's episode. More of that in a sec. Back to last week. I knew it. I knew that Freeman Adjiman was going to be a big hit with you. What did I tell you? You were right. Yep. It was one of those episodes where you, and you've said it yourself on social media and messages that we've had, it felt like two old friends catching up and having a laugh. And that is what it's all about. It was perfect. Now, speaking of friends, today's episode is with the actor and director Matthew Dunster. I first met Matthew about seven years ago now. He directed me in Martin McDonough's play Hangman in London alongside past TSP favourite guests, Mr David Morrissey and Mr Andy Nyman. And look, I'm veering off a minute, but... While I uh, I mention the name of Andy Nyman, he's coming back. That's right. Andy Nyman and Mr. Jeremy Dyson are going to be joining us in a few weeks. They have written a book, which I'm thoroughly enjoying at the moment. It comes out on April the 13th. It's called The Warlock Effect. And we're going to sit down with those two geniuses and chat about how you write a book together. So I'm really looking forward to sitting down with Andy. We're going to go back into his uh, magical cave in London. I know Griff's really looking forward to it, as am I, and you will be too. So today's episode, yeah, I first met Matthew when he directed me all those years ago. Um, I've wanted him on for ages. Uh, he's he's quite unique in the way that he directs. Um and who he stands up for and what he says. He's not backwards or coming forwards. Um, and I've always loved that about him. So let's get down to it. This is the Two Shot Podcast with the brilliant Mr. Matthew Dunster. 
I don't really go to press nights. No, you don't, do you? No, I don't even... You know, I'll stick around at my own until I've sort of said thank you to everyone and then go on. Do you still not watch it? I watched... It's all changed a bit now, because, like, I went to... I watched press night of... Um, Shelley Valentine, because there's no pressing. Because now, you do that many previews and they start letting them in. Which I think is probably better for the performers, because they... Is that, quite, is that quite an American way? Yeah. Yeah. Started so they started adopting the that. Then, yeah. so, so when I realised that on press night there was not going to be anyone in, I thought, actually, I'd quite like to sit between me, Ling, and my mate Dennis Kelly and watch the show, because I knew they'd be pissing themselves. And, and does that take the pressure off you as a director and also the cast I know I, 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 know from... I don't like it because I, I sort of it makes me uncomfortable for like five previews instead of just one press night but I I think it's better for the cast yeah but because uh, it is a lot of pressure Martin insists on Martin's shows he's like one press night because he likes you know he's like he just wants everyone to be scared <laughs> yeah of course all scared, the time he'll do a better, <laughs> yeah. he'll do a better <laughs> job okay we over. <laughs> See, the thing is, then we'd already started. I'd always thought we'd already started recording. <laughs> um, but it's nice today for two reasons. One, we're in person doing this, mm -hmm. and I've been doing so many flying solo at home with a laptop. And we get to see producer Griff, which is lovely. But more importantly, it's you. I know we've been talking about you coming on here for quite some time. So I'm pleased that... Uh, we're a little bit late in starting, but it's good to see you. Nice to see you. Are you well? I am well, yeah, I'm good. I'm I'm sort of I'm in that post opening show kind of it's energizing because suddenly you don't have to go to work every day and rehearse. And because the show Shirley Valentine opened last Wednesday, mm. I'm at I'm at that stage where I'm waking up in the morning going, Oh my god, I don't have to go anywhere. And I can do things like this. But is that energising or do you feel a bit lost? Because I know you, you do love to work. I find it... I do find it energising. Right. And I do love to work. Mm. But I, I think I've learnt to try and make the most of both periods, the busy periods and the sitting at home. I'm a bit... That's why I've got a plaster on my thumb. I'm, I'm a bit of a DIY freak. Oh, yeah? Yeah, any spare time... Give me a sander. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy. Or oh, the garden. I think, like a lot of people, it's all lockdown just changed our lives, didn't it? It I changed it, my life. You think it changed everybody's lives more than the new, yeah. Um, I've always been quite handy, and it does take my mind off my mind. So, painting a wall or digging a hole in the garden, they are. I, I, it's useful for me psychologically, I think. Yeah. It's a, it's a far cry from. Being a, a theatre director, jumping into manual labour. Yeah, and it's um, it's balance, isn't it? I mean, you know, without boring people, the older you get, that's what we're pursuing, isn't it? Balance, I think. Oh, I put up a very large IKEA wardrobe last week. I was quite there proud of myself. Balanced. Um, <laughs> Dunster, a good film or a good book? Uh, a good film. Mm. I think. What's your ideal sort of Friday night? Would there be a flying solo to the pictures or with the family on the settee? With the family on the settee, I have to be honest, both those aren't as big a part of my life as they should be. And that's because certainly film and telly, telly in particular, it can feel like a bit of a busman's holiday. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, if you've been with actors all day, and also words, you know, I, I'm reading, even if I'm, even if I'm rehearsing one script, I'm probably trying to read two or three on the way in, in snatch moments after dinner. So the drama in my life and the words in my life sort of mean that I'm not... But I would, you know, I end up watching stuff the kids want to watch and now they're getting all, you know, my ideal would be me, me Ling and the kids watching The Mandalorian with a, with a takeaway. Yeah. Uh, I'll just recommend The Last of Us if you haven't watched, started watching oh, that with oh, the family. Okay. Great. Start watching it with my son over half term. It's very good. Oh, very, very good. Too. Saturday night or Sunday morning. Uh, Interpret this as you will if it was you as a 25-year-old or you now answer whichever way. I'd say Sunday morning. I mean, like, because of my lifestyle, I don't. There's not that big a difference between Tuesday night and Saturday night. Mm -hmm. I'll have a drink when I want to have a drink, and I'll do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. But Sunday morning is. I'm quite an early riser, so I get up before everybody else. Got a bit of time on my own, and then usually there's two football matches because Sid, my son, mm. and Jen, one of my girls, play Sunday league teams. Right. So. That is a routine that I like very much. What kind of father are you on the, the sideline of the Ridiculously pitch? aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... Um, I have actually said to the coach a couple of times, because, you know, you, you get all these emails about let the coach coach, and not, not directed to me, you know, <laughs> to all the parents. You say. And I, I hope. And um, so I have actually checked in and said, do I say, tell me if it's too much and it but what I've noticed about Sunday League is that most coaches used to be centre forwards and all their kids are centre forwards. Right. Because there's something about that glory role I think <laughs> that makes them want to keep a keep some skin in the game. And I was a defender and so I I always stand where the defence are and I sort of fancy myself as a bit of an unofficial defence coach. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew, the city or the country the country. Um, and I guess that goes back to, you know, being brought up in a kind of urban environment mm -hmm. on an estate in Oldham. Then um, I went to university or drama school. I went to a place called Bretton Hall, mm -hmm. which is in Yorkshire Sculpture Park. Um, it's a beautiful spot. A beautiful spot. And I just arrived there at the age of 21 and just went, okay, this is, I like this. Took me took me a while to get used to it. Mm. Very isolated at Bretton Hall. You tend to stay there, and I guess so. Ever since then, I've always. I, I I think I would move out of London to the country if I could convince my wife, but now the kids are at an age where they're London kids and they've got their own relationships. So to pull them out of London would would feel a bit cruel. I mm. think that's the thing in it with kids. You're just always considering what they need as well. You know. So, uh, but the country I'd love to... My, my ambition is that when I retire, that when I open my back door, I can't see anybody else's house. I'd like to live somewhere like that. Yeah, that is the dream, isn't it? So I either need to build a big fence <laughs> or move to the country. Look, you're the handyman, get, get, <laughs> yeah, exactly. get that fence yeah. sorted. Where you are now, at the age you are now, yeah. and the experience that you've had... Yeah. Would you say you're less ambitious or more ambitious? Less ambitious. Interesting. And I, I don't know. 
I directed a show in Tokyo a few years ago, and I worked with this brilliant actor called Yoshi Odi, and he is, if you look on any of the Peter Brooks books of acting, there's a, there's a Japanese actor um, on, a, on the front cover of a lot of them. So he worked with Peter Brook for years. He lives in Paris. He's mm. like a god of acting. And somehow they convinced him to come back to Tokyo and do... I was doing Oedipus, he played a very small part. And he took me out for lunch one day, and he, we got on really well. And he's in his 80s. I would have been, what, 50 then, 49. And he said, if you could do anything, what, what, what would it be? And I was sort of chilled by the fact that I couldn't, I couldn't answer the question. Now, on the one hand, I think that means that I, I'm, in, I'm quite fulfilled, mm -hmm. but I... I don't know. It's weird as being a theatre director, because you... Like anything else, I guess, there are signposts. And maybe a signpost is running a building. I don't. I have no desire to run a building. I think another signpost is often... And part of this is because of the financial reward. Directors move into opera. I've got no desire to move into opera. So without really pushing, I've... Um, I've sort of found myself, for the most part, doing the work I, I want to do and feeling that the rewards are, are healthy. And working with the people that you want yeah. to work with, it yeah. seems. Yeah, working with the people. And also um, making work for audiences that I'm interested in. And that can be... You can get there by mistake. Like, with, with, I did this play called 222, and it was the, I think it was the first play to open in... On, in the West End after COVID. And I had this idea of approaching Lily Allen to be in it. And what, what that did was it sort of created a, a particular audience, an audience that was young enough to want to take the risk. We can't remember that now, but we were like, is anyone going to come? And mm. actually the people that did come were young because they were less fearful. But also all Lily's fans came. And what's been really exciting about that project Part of it has been to do with how we've kept recasting it is our audience are always 30-something and a bit pissed, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is great, mm. you know. And then with Shirley Valentine, which I opened last week, I would say our audiences are about 60-something, predominantly female and a bit pissed. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but so, so those good night outs are underrated, I think. Mm. And, um, yeah, and, and I also find myself, again, I think this is about age, and I've realised that um, the subsidised sector, like the Royal Court or the National even, and certainly places like the Bush, they're training grounds, Craig. It's, it, and that's good, mm. because it's, it, it's, it's all our money, it's state money, and maybe I've had my fair share of that. I've had some brilliant opportunities in those yeah. theatres, but I don't tend to get a call from those theatres anymore. It's um, the, the projects that people want me to lead on a commercial. Do you remember when that change was? Hangman. Right. Hangman. Because, think, because, it, because it flew, because of, of where it started. Look, commercial producers and their investors are gamblers. That, that's literally what they are. Mm. They go, right, here's a big chunk of money. Some people put 100 quid in, some people put, you know, 100,000 in. And they're gambling on a return. And they don't, and they often don't get one. Yeah. And I think, like all gamblers, they're superstitious. And if you make money for someone, someone else starts knocking on your door and says, can you come and try and pull that trick off for us? 
And uh, so that was, in every way, Hangmen sort of changed my life. It was the beginning of a significant, new, important relationship with Martin. Mm. It was the first time I'd had anything on in the West End and I didn't really know what that world was till we got there. Um, for the listeners, that's when I, I first met Craig. Craig joined the cast of Hangmen when... Um, we moved from the Royal Court yeah, to well, the well, West End. I'm sure we'll come on to that in a minute. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and that was, yeah, it was a real sort of watershed moment for me. And, uh, and I guess because of what Hangman was, that it was a quality piece of work that had come from the West End, it just meant that the next thing I was asked to do in the West End was um, True West. So again, it was not, you know, I always felt like, I still feel it's a place where I can do good work with and, good people. And intimate, quite intimate yes, work. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and likewise, putting things together for, for Broadway, um, I still think I can, I still think I can think like me. I, can, I still think I can do the work that I want to do. And... Um, yeah, so Hangman was was a big changing point in every respect. I owe that show a lot. You, men, you mentioned before about you not wanting to run a building. Mm -hmm. Do you think it takes... Oh, actually, I'll rephrase that. What do you think it takes to run a successful building? What do you, what do you need in you? Because, I, I mean... Well, I think there's some practical things. Yeah. I think not having kids is often helpful. When I look around, I think that is not... It's not across the board, mm. but I think it's a 24-7 job. I was going to say, yeah. You've got to be totally committed to that. And a lot, wearing a lot of hats, I should imagine. Yes. And I guess, because I was an associate for about three years at the Young Vic, um, in a real golden period when David Lamb was there. Yeah. And then I was just down the road, I was an associate for two years in an amazing period, but also that ended in a very complex way. When Emma Rice was... Um, so I've seen it at close hand. I've mm. seen David run a building and I've seen Emma run a building. And, and being the number two, as it were, is a brilliant situation because you're part of all the decision-making, the programming, collect, curating, but you, you don't have to worry about the finances and the toilet rolls and all that stuff. So nothing about watching those two people run those organisations rather brilliantly made me think that I wanted to do it. Do you think it would change if it was a, a smaller building? No. No, because the, the responsibilities are the same, I suppose. I imagine. think so, yeah. yeah. I think so, yeah. And also, they're not paid enough. I think, you know, throughout... I think people never have a sense of how badly um, theatre directors are paid. It's some weird historic thing that I've spent a lot of time trying to unpick. I think it's to do with probably the nature of the class that... Um, traditionally directors came from. Um, they don't get paid anywhere near what, say, writers get paid. Um, the structure of how they're paid is rubbish. So there's... Um, yeah, it's, it's running a building is not an attractive proposition to me in any way right now. Right now. You mentioned then before about how we first met, and I remember... We were, it was the first week of our rehearsal and we, we didn't know each other 
at all, really. And, I th- and I'm sure we were outside in South London when we were rehearsing. And I said to you, because uh, we had mutual friends in common from, yeah. from the north anyway. Yeah. And I said to you, um, so when, when was the turning point? When did you stop being an actor and become a theatre director? And you turned to me <laughs> in a very <laughs> slightly scary and blunt fashion and went, I didn't stop acting. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that? No, I don't remember that. I, I do. But I, but I still, you know, I did a podcast um, for Paul Hunter recently. He does this, uh, who runs Tolbin Idiot. He does a podcast called um, Regrets. I have a few, I think. Mm. And he, he he came onto that subject. And the way he asked it, it was actually quite emotional, really, in terms of... Um, I didn't stop acting. I just started directing mm. You know, I kind of know what I'm doing till the end of 2024, some projects into 2025, because directors are just booked in a different way than actors are booked. So very quickly, I am... There was no space. About two years ago, Kwame at the Young Vic, because I'd directed and acted and written stuff there, they had a kind of 50th birthday special with performances... And he asked me if I'd perform this monologue that I did, about ten sides or whatever. So, and I'd not been on stage since, I think, 2005. Right. So, apart from reading in when actors have been sick or whatever. So, so to learn a monologue and go out there, that was really scary. But I, once I'd been asked, I thought, I have to do it. And it was a really good reminder of what I ask actors to do. Yeah. And that I perhaps started to take for granted, you know. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's go back. Let's go back to Lancashire and let's go back to growing up, mm-hmm. specifically Oldham. Mm-hmm. Um, how was it? How was the family life growing up there? Kind of brilliant as well. Uh, well, well, brilliant not just with family life, but with um, I guess what I describe as the community life. Really, like I feel very well. I've written about this. I did a. I wrote a play that our very good friend Will Ash was Lash, in, yep. called I Can See the Hills, which was a very romantic, I, I think, um, version of events. Although it was full of kind of the, the violence that was around and the sex that was around. Um, so what am I saying? I had a fantastic time. But I think in as we've all started to... 
And I was t totally loved. Me and my brother, it was a fantastic family unit, just full of love and support. And as I started to want to do weird things, like plays, as opposed to the things that were more commonly around me, I got nothing but love and support and interest from my parents, actually. Although, and they found the theatre through me. Right, OK, play. yeah. Um, but I've, I think post Me Too and post... I hate to call it post-George Floyd because it makes it feel like suddenly there was a problem that hadn't been there before, but I hope people know what I mean as a mm. cultural moment. Yeah. I've started to look back at it all slightly differently, Craig, and just go... And this sounds extreme, but I was brought up, not necessarily at home, but by the immediate environment. I'm sure this is probably the same for you. As a, as a sexist and a racist and a homophobe, it was just... That's what it was like growing up in the 70s. And maybe I think I'd like to revisit some of the material that's in my bones mm. and just look at it from a slightly less romantic, more critical point of view. Um, yeah, so it's complicated. It's complicated. If it wasn't your parents introducing you to culture and mm. theatre, how, how did you discover it? And when were you, were you quite a young child or were you in your uh, teens at this point? Well, it depends what culture is. I remember I used to have, in the early 70s, I, <laughs> I used to have a burgundy cord suit with a zip, with a, with a big circle there, and a T-shirt that said Mike Deadshot <laughs> with a bullet hole in it. And I thought I was Elvis Presley. <laughs> and, uh, and was so as always, I, can, I got a real sense of me performing. And mm. I created this character called Mike Deadshot. <laughs> and he used, I used to climb up the stairs and over the landing and like, you know, like, and it was on my own. I, I, I was sort of, I was a fantasist, I guess. I guess yeah, that's the, I think a lot of us were. Yeah, so I, I, and I guess that's why from a very early age I sort of pursued things like women and adventure. You know, as a kid, a very, I was a very early starter in lots of things and, and pursued you know, drugs, and I, I wanted to have adventures. And I guess the great thing about drama is, for me, was something came along that allowed me to escape and was safe, which is brilliant, yeah. you know. I read something by Peter Stein that I talk about a lot, that they say that humans stop, stop playing about the same time that they start having sex which makes total sense to me. Yeah. Suddenly you're investing in something else that's great. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Fun and all the rest of it. And what I think where we're really lucky is we get to keep doing both. We didn't have to stop playing. So... But at that age, when you first discover, discover sex, you also discover how you can be so self-conscious. So, Therefore, yeah. the playing aspect just takes that back seat. I think so, yeah. You, it's not cool, is it? No. Play? I remember, you know, I, I, again, speaking about culture, I was quite a... Uh, I was quite a good tenor horn player in a brass band. I was in a traditional brass band, and I think by the age of 12, I was the solo horn player in an adult band. You know, I was like Ewan McGregor or something, yeah. getting brassed off. It was one of them. And, um, and as soon as I went to secondary school and I used to carry this big case into, I just thought, I'm going to get fucking killed here. So that went, you know, so there were a lot of things that were just... I went to it like most of us, I guess... The primary school environment is one thing, and as soon as I got to this secondary school, I just thought, okay. So 
But weirdly, changes. weirdly, drama at the school had a status where it was cool. Anyway, to answer your question, I had an English teacher who she she went off ill, and the head of English came in, and he's kind of a folk hero. This guy really, it's Colin Snell, who mm-hmm. got, you know, you've yeah. been, you know, yeah. people like Will Ash, Jeff Hordley, Paul Hilton, me. Um, we all came into contact with this brilliant English teacher who encouraged us to perform. And I think he was always clever about the entry thing. I mean, he spoke to me about Kez. That was the first thing I ever did. And he gave me a copy of the script. And there's a character in Kez, a bully called McDowell. And I was like, if I can play that bully, I'll do it. And I can still remember the lines. <laughs> can you? Yeah, they're so, in, you know, they're so... Because I, I probably only had about ten lines and I just... It was a massive moment for me. I can remember being on stage and thinking, I'm good at this. I remember having that thought, looking around at people who didn't, you know, who weren't, who were just rigid and yeah. just thinking, oh, okay, this is really... You felt I comfortable. Felt totally comfortable. Natural, yes. yeah. And just, just the fact that Paul Hilton was, in this, was a year below me, and Jeff as well to some extent, he, he, he wasn't quite as into it as me and Paul where I was just obsessed immediately but with Paul I had someone who could push me and match me all the way through school so you know we did West Side Story together and I was Riff and he was Tony and then we did a play called uh, a Lyle Kessler play called Orphans and we took it to the National Student Drama Festival and these were big this was big meaty stuff I had a guy opposite me who could do it and really do it you know and, um, so I think that allowed us to push to some quite significant heights as performers, really, at a young age. And even though there was so obviously so much passion, then you said yeah, how natural you felt, and you took, obviously took to it like a duck to water, did you feel, oh, well, this could be a viable career for me? I don't know. I don't know. I, I earned a bit of money doing... Um, I used to do photo shoots for, like, Jackie and stuff like did that. Did you? Yeah. Um, for those listening, for those younger listeners, <laughs> Jackie was a very popular... And both, both very popular so a, young, young girls' magazine. There was a, some sort of agency, and I don't know how I got involved with it, but then you just rock up and they'd ask you to take two sets of clothes. And, and HIV was very prevalent at the time, and I can remember being in them, and at one point, suddenly, you weren't allowed to kiss. The, the final picture of the picture story yeah. was always... The boy and girl yeah, snogging. And suddenly that stopped. So I can remember the sort of cultural impact of people sort of going, you're just not allowed to touch each other anymore. It's too dangerous, you know. Wow. And, and that being played out in these... I've still got some of them somewhere. Um, that framed, my, my dad it, framed in the downstairs yeah. toilet. Um, so, no, I mean, I left at stuff. I messed, every, I messed up my A-levels, but I got enough to stay on to do my A-levels, which was great, because I just wanted to carry on doing the plays. At school, mm. and then at eighteen, I got a job at Northwest Water for three years. But at, just before I left school, that's when we went to the National Student Drama Festival, and me and Paul Hilton won the Best Actor awards, and that was up against Rada and Lester Polly, and you know, you know, and we were a comp. Mm-hmm. So some of the Judges or guest tutors were people like Ian Ricks and Polly Teal. Right. So between the ages of 18 to 21, I, went, I came to London and did three 
pretty good jobs. One at the National, one at Payne's Plough, one at what is now Soho Theatre, but was Soho Poly. And I had this brilliant boss at Northwest Water who used to give me, like, unpaid leave to go and do them. Wow. And after about three years of this, he went, you've got to make your mind up, you've got to... And, um, and I think I tried. I applied for lots of drama schools during that course and didn't get in. And then at that point I applied for Bretton Hall at the age of 21 and got in. So, yes, it, I guess... Yes, it did feel like a viable career. Or, or, or I think from pretty early on starting it, I knew it was what I wanted to do. Do you think that boss at the water company was doing you a favour? Yes, I can't remember his name. Pete, Peter Brennan, I think he was called. And he had been a frustrated musician, I think. Had he? That's so interesting. It was, I think he was like... I think all the stuff about giving me time off and then saying, you know, you've got to make your mind up was, I guess... He'd done, I'd done three years at the water board. He'd done maybe 15 years at the water board. So he did me a lot of favours, actually, yeah. And sometimes we all need a bit of a push, don't we? Absolutely. And I've been very lucky. You know, it's really weird. I mean, you know, anyone who knows me or follows me on Twitter will see I'm just constantly banging on about how um, class doesn't come into it enough in terms of when we think a group is marginalised and doesn't get enough opportunities based on that marginalisation. Weirdly, the reason I banged that drum is because I've had so many opportunities. That's not been my story. I've been very lucky. I feel like almost at every stage, someone's handed me a significant opportunity. Mm -hmm. But that makes me want lots of people to have it, or more people from our kind of background to to have that. Because it is there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny you should mention about social media, Matthew. Oh, God, here we go. Because there was something that you posted, I believe, today on the day of recording, and it goes like this. So much classism in theatre criticism. (laughs) Again and again, twittering from their Prosecco chamber in either a patronising or disdainful manner. The working class are something they target with the same vicious relish that their papers and the Tories do. Is this a response to some some reviews? Well, yeah, but not necessarily my... Do you know what? It well, is, the, the thing is, is that Shirley Valentine has just had 16 five-star reviews, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's probably the biggest hit I've ever had. It's took a £4 million advance. Yep. And weirdly, I think these are the times when you have to speak out because you feel safe. Like, if I'd got a load of two-star reviews and everyone had said my play was shit and I didn't know what I was doing, that just feels like sour grapes. Was actually, I think that's the time to say, you know, thank you very much, those reviews are great, but the tone of some of them and the tone of many other reviews that I read about a particular kind of play by a particular kind of playwright performed by a particular kind of actor are patronising and... um, yeah, there, 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 there was one um, podcast review that someone said you should listen to this. And there were these two posh, entitled people from the arts world. And it was the way they talked about the actor and the way they talked about the play. D- doing the voices, doing the, you know, doing a cod sort of mm-hmm. scare. I just thought, this is so unsavoury and it's a form of kind of. It's classism, it's a form of bullying. And bullying, I, yeah, yeah. I hate it. Yeah. And I hate it. And um, 
I think it's good to remember when, when it's going well that that's a time when you've actually, you can speak more confidently. Well, it is, should be, well, it is the time to yeah. speak out at that point. But do you know of any reviewers, and I say that's across the board, really, or certainly theatre reviewers, who are from a working-class background? I don't know. I don't. And also, I think, you know, one of the things that I guess we're fighting all the time, and I don't mean this about denying yourself any kind of cultural mobility, is there's a, there's a, there's a director called Matthew Zia, who's a very interesting young guy, um, and he is from a benefits class background, mm. and he t- said it, it, it took him ten years to stop assimilating. He said he even started wearing a cravat. Wow! <laughs> and, and suits to work. You know, when he was the as- associate director for uh, Sarah Frankham at the Royal Exchange, that there's so much pressure to almost, I guess, market yourself in some way as a, as a in quotes, theatre director, that you can... It's a very easy place to lose sight of who you are and where you're from. And he's absolutely reclaimed who he is and where he's from, and he, he, he now runs um, the actor's um, tour in theatre and runs it brilliantly and progressively. But But that's never happened to you. You don't seem... I, I mean, I know we've known each other for... I have known you for all, all your life, but I've certainly known each other for a fair few years, and you always seem to be who you are. You don't uh, seem uh, to be have changed or, or or bullied in any way. No, I, well, no, well, I have been bullied, but I also think I need you. You met. I was, you know, I've been at it quite a while and was confident when I met you. Mm. But I absolutely accepted invitations to parties or events that I was at, that I was at and was uncomfortable at for the whole time I was there. Um, and I guess it comes with confidence and experience. You go, oh, I don't have to go to those parties. I don't have to go to those parties. And they, they, I don't need to make friends with them. Do you know what I mean? I've got enough friends. Um, but I, I'd be lying if I said I'd always just been able to hold on securely to who I am and where I'm from. I absolutely went through a period of feeling I had to make a set of choices or similar. I mean, you know, as a working... You know, you asked me if I had any working-class... Um, reviewers. Reviewers. Who are the working-class theatre directors? You know, Dennis Kelly said to me once, you're a unicorn. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I don't really... Uh, you know, they're, they're, they are coming through. But the tradition, and it was a tradition, of theatre directors doing English at Cambridge, it was that specific, and then entering into a subsidised building in the literary department and then becoming an associate director and then becoming an artistic director is still knocking about. And certainly when I started was was very much within the fabric of all the institutions that I was working in. And... But as I said, weirdly, I, I was always given opportunities, often by some of these people. But again, you have to sort of go. You might have just given me a great big bone, but you still treat me like a dog. You know what I mean? So it's yeah, I, I learnt the hard way at some parties. <laughs> I think we, yeah, we all do. <laughs> I remember when I, you know, not being yourself, and I've said this before, I. Uh, many, many, many years ago, I became more northern. 
to try and stand out. Yeah, yeah. To be a little bit more northern, a little bit more bolshy. Yeah, yeah. And that I understand that. I yeah. Understand that. And it's a combination of self-protection, mm. but also a kind of projection. Mm. It's like, you know, making the world meet you on your terms. Oh, yeah, it was an absolute choice. Yeah, I yeah, knew why yeah, I was doing it, yeah. but also through fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally get that. I totally get that. You spoke about opportunities before, about people giving you opportunities. So how did the leap from acting to writing to the theatre directing go? Was it via the writing? Because it's all... I know, I know a lot of actors that say, yeah, I'd love to direct a, a short film. Inevitably, they do, and they make it for £2.50 out of their own pocket yeah, or they yeah, get a nice yeah. budget together. Very rarely do I know of many actors that have had quite a nice career and then jump into theatre directing? Well, it goes back to this teacher, um, Colin to Snell. Colin Snell, yeah. Um, and when I didn't get into drama schools when I was 18, I think I was really low, and he said, why don't you write yourself something? So I wrote this monologue called Dear Applicant Stroke Auditionee because all the letters to drama school, all the, all the refusals or whatever they call them, start with Dear Applicant Stroke Auditionee. <laughs> You are not, you're not good enough, you're not coming in. So it's, I wrote this weird monologue about this kid who... I can remember it started with She Bangs the Drum by the Stone Roses, and it was about him breaking into this theatre at night. Um, that's all I can remember about it, really. So by the time I went to Bretton Hall, and Bretton Hall's not a traditional drama school in that respect, the things that they wanted us to do, which was write and direct, and in your third year, you mainly assessed as an actor, but you had to write a monologue and you had to direct a show with first years in it. So I guess I kind of left Bretton all ready to do all three. Right. And my first gig was as a writer, a, a play that I'd written while I was at, um, at Bretton Hall at uni was put on at contact, literally at the month that I left. So I wow. left as a writer, Wow. really. Play called You Used To. And then they commissioned me to write another play, which was on the following year, called Tell Me. And at the same time, I got a job, just like the most golden job someone like us could get. I mean, I left uni, and my first proper meaty acting role a year later was in Road, directed by Jim Carwright himself. Oh, at, my at, God. At the Royal Exchange. So that theatre, which meant, you know, so much to anyone from the northwest and mm. blah, blah. So I, I just thought I was bulletproof. I thought, I am a playwright, I'm, I am an actor. I guess the directing comes... It was always a very good way of being able to support other artists, be they writers or be they actors. And I was part of a community here. Um, and, I, and I used to teach various workshops and stuff, and I remember... Uh, a writer called Gary Bleasdale, who was Alan Bleasdale's nephew, he wrote this play. And I said, if you finish it, I'll try and get it on. And I got it on. Where did you get it on? The Broccoli Jack, the right. Pope Theatre. And at the same time, I was in a show, weirdly, I was in um, The Daughter-in-Law, directed by David Lan at The Young Vic, and the two brothers, the two leads in it, were me and Paul Hilton. Weirdly. No way! Yes. So like, we, we came back together, as it were, had you no. been in touch since then? Or? Not really. We Not really sort of, at all. I, think, I, don't, I think we sort of... He wouldn't mind me saying this. We, we sort of got a bit estranged in the way we both left. Um, and, you know, so we, we went out for a drink after the first day of rehearsals and really made up. And it was me, him and Amory Duff. So it was a great cast. Wow. 
And at the end of the play, the end of the run, David said to me, what are you doing next? And I rather sheepishly, I said, well, I'm, I'm directing the show at the Broccoli Jack. And he went, I'll, I'll come and see it. And I thought, yeah, they always say that, don't they? Yeah, of course they do. Anyway, I'm sat in the audience a couple of weeks later and he's there. And then the day after, he offered me a show at The Young Vic. I did Some Voices by Joe Pennell Great with Tom Brook, Tom Brook's first job. Wow. And, um, and then the day after that, I think, or not long after that, he asked me to be an associate. So it just happened at the speed of light. And again, just through circumstance and being offered up, being offered significant opportunity by God. somebody. I mean, it really doesn't happen that no, quick, does no, it? No, it, it was... It was a, I guess what I already had... Like, people say to me, who, who, who did you enjoy assisting the most? I said, I've never assisted anyone in my life. But as an actor, I'd work with Dominic Cook... Max Stafford-Clark, Ian Rickson, Katie Mitchell, um, Richard Wilson, who's the best act director I've worked with, um, as director of actors. Um, they were all great in different ways, but I learned a lot from him about actors. Um, so as well as having that kind of wealth of experience and that bank of knowledge from those brilliant directors, I guess I also had contacts and relationships. Yeah. Because all the places I wanted to work, I'd worked. So I think it was probably just a lot easier for me than the majority of people. And did you learn from the directors who you thought were less good than those? Well, that's, that, the, that's, that's quite the answer about the question about why I started directing, because I think some of the productions of my plays, I just thought... I can. I want to do those in a different way, and the only way that I can do those is if I direct them. Right. So that was, and I guess another part of the journey towards becoming a director. And were you still based in the north at this point? No, I no. I um, I left Bretton Hall in '94 and I moved to London in '95 and right. I've, been here, I've been here ever since. But you know, it's sod's law. I moved to London in '95 and never worked here. I was like, I spent five years working in Manchester and Newcastle. Yeah. No, but it always happens. Doesn't All it? the telly, obviously, because of the way we speak. On oh, the telly, I did was up north. I was in Corrie for a year. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I remember telling you. I was in Corrie for a year. How did you find that? Because again, that is a completely different way of working. Page count. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy it. I have to say, I am. Um, that I stayed at my mum and dad's at the beginning and the route that I used to drive to Coronation Street was the same route that I used to drive to North West Water and I just thought, I just feel like I'm going to North West Water. And you get there and every act, I'm not saying it's the same now, it wasn't, it was the particular environment when I was there. And um, I'd see all the actors coming in and the first question they'd ask is, what time do I finish? And I was like, get me out, oh. get me out of here. And um, so I... I yeah, it wasn't the happiest experience. But I paid off debts and all the rest of it, did a year. They couldn't believe it when I said I didn't want to stay. So was, I'm, I'm done, do you know what I mean? I'm done. And also you, you sort of get a sense of who's right for that environment and some people absolutely are. I mean, I started on, a th I think, exactly the same day as Saran Jones. Right. And I remember watching and going, oh, my God, you are gold dust. You are exactly... It was dying on its arse at the time. I just thought, you are exactly what the show needs. 
And me sitting there pretending to be Liam Gallagher was not necessarily what it needed. Do you know what I mean? She, and she just lit the whole place up, you know. But it is so important at the start of your career to rule out what isn't for you. Yeah. And to, and to have the bravery to go, well, no, I could stay here and there's a lovely sense of security financially, but if it's not for you, you should get out, shouldn't you? Yeah, and I had a taste of a lot of other things around the same time, you know. Mm. I was work. I was doing all the theatre work everybody wanted to do, you know. I was working at the Royal Court and the National, you know. I was doing the jobs that young actors want to do. Mm. Um, so I was, you know, hungry to get back to that. What do you think the transferable skills are? And obviously you can only speak from personal experience, from being an actor... To being a director? To being a director. Well... I think they're all transferable. I mean, another way of answering the question is I just wish more directors, more actors did it. I do think there's a kind of cultural stranglehold that, as I said, a certain kind of intellectual still has upon that role of a, of a director. still think we equate it more to the literary tradition than to the acting tradition. So, you know, you'll, 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 you can attest as, as, as much as anyone else whether I'm bullshitting myself here but what I feel most actors have said to me at the end of a at the end of a process is you knew how to help and I think I know how to help because I've done it and I think and also you listen right which, which is obviously is a big part of it was the um, part yeah you know and it's like it's like what you do here and you know I, I'm in therapy at the moment and I feel like what you do here, what I do as a director, what I experience from my therapist, it's all kind of the same thing. It's like asking questions that um, allow people to access something internal. And having been asked brilliant questions by brilliant directors that allowed me to have that access, I hope I've got some of those skills. I'll get back to you on that. No, you do. Uh, Matthew Dunster, this has been really lovely. But I don't want to finish yet because I want to talk about theatre directing because at the moment you're directing a one-woman show, or you have been. Mm -hmm. Do you approach that differently to an ensemble or a four-hander? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know that, you know, it's one of the things I like to do in rehearsals, circuit trains. So yeah. Beginning of every day, everybody comes in and trains. Um, it's a, it is a brilliant way to start. I think so. And I think, you know, it feels quite unusual in, in this country. I, I do think, you know, I do think there are traditions around the world that we could learn so much more from. It's not unusual in a, in a big state theatre in Germany or Russia for them to train. I mean, they live and work together, essentially. And um, I think it's a great way to start the day. I didn't do that with Sheridan because I just thought, it'd just be weird, me and I didn't sit up. (laughs) 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 But, but, um, and so the more on, the bigger the ensemble, I guess the more ensemble the work is, Mm. you know, so you're, you're often building a kind of chorus feel or trying to figure out the vocabulary, you know, how do we create a marketplace or... Um, how do we create the sense of there being a thousand troops? And having directed Will in 
I always talk about when Will did that monologue of mine, You Can See the Hills. The interesting thing was he was training for a marathon at the same... You know what he's like. He was mm. training for a marathon at the same time. And I remember thinking, it's the same thing for him. You know, it's, it is a marathon. I mean, a show like that or Shirley Valentine. So I only rehearsed with Sheridan maybe two hours a day because the job was to go on and learn it. Yeah. And I knew, mainly because of the sort of actor that she is, she's, you know, she's, there's a lot of dance in her and there's a lot of... She likes technique. So I knew that if she knew that she puts the glass down on that line and picks the pencil up on that line, that it would go in. Yeah. That the, 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 the physical stuff would help her. So we would just do a little bit of that each morning, and then I'd say, right, go home and learn that section. So it was very chilled and very... And then you'd go back the next day. We'd have a look at what we'd done. Yeah. And then we'd add a bit more. Right. You know, and she'd get a sense of how well she had or hadn't learned the lines. I mean, it's, a, it's interesting to ask the question about Sheridan because... She's in some ways a bad example because she's just brilliant. So yeah. she learns it like that. The blocking just goes into her body like that and she makes it feel totally natural. And um, so. And what's the, ta- what's the length? What's the t- running time of this? I think the first half is about an hour and five and the second half is about 35. So it's a lot to learn. Yeah. Um, the, I remember when I, the, the play that I mentioned going right back you know one of the reasons I do circuits and it's a, probably a terrible admission is when you become a director you do sort of feel like you're not in the gang anymore and I like being in the gang yeah you know? and um, that's why I get involved with all the circuits to some extent but I remember when I was first directing that play I mentioned early on by Gary Bleasdale at the Broccoli Jacket it was a two-hander and when you're in a show with someone or even when you're in a company you kind of want everyone to fall in love with you and I only mean that as a kind of you know that the alchemy of playing opposite someone or being a gang of lads around a table whatever the scene is the alchemy of of, of that of being a gang and falling in love is brilliant isn't it I mean yeah. that's what I miss it's well, brilliant like it. it's brilliant yeah. you know it's that brilliant story about Tarantino when they were rehearsing um yeah, Pulp Fiction, and they were just sat around a table in someone's house and John Travolta's there and all the, all the stars of the film are there, they're all reading and John Travolta just goes, this is fucking great. <laughs> and, and, it, and it is, you know what I mean? It is for John Travolta, it is for, for anyone. Um, and, but what I remembered about that show really early on was I thought, oh, my job's different, I've got to make them fall in love with each other. I've got to keep out of the way. Hmm. And that was, that was a big thing to sort of hand over, just like, okay... I'm kind of in the gang, but my responsibility really is for the rest of the gang. You know, so. There was... And I don't get involved with social media arguments because you might as well just scream into a pillow. But there was a little bit of kickback when Cheryl was cast. But a bit of background, she was a, a pop star. Yes. And now she's come into yes. it. Is it. Am I right in her first acting role? As far as I know, yeah. As far as I know. I think she did a tiny little walk on in the film, maybe, but she's not done anything of this scale, no. Without a rigorous... And maybe she did have a rigorous audition process. How do you know if someone has got it? You don't. You must know, though, because you've cause you cast Lily Allen, and I remember talking to you on the phone, and I, I, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, you told me 
that you've never seen anyone with such a work ethic that she was in before rehearsal starting. She was the last one to Absolutely. leave. Absolutely, total. Uh, she she knew. In you didn't know that. You didn't. You don't know that no. either until you start no. working with someone. No, I mean, I spoke to Lily. I mean, she wouldn't mind me saying this. I spoke to Lily about it. Um, once I'd had the idea, and I'd had the idea about Lily as an actress a few years ago. I think I was talking to a brother about something and I, and, I, and I just thought, oh, I bet I bet Lily can act. And I spent a bit of time watching her videos, which are so performative, obviously, and then I was thinking, yeah, she... Same with Nadine. It was watching the video with you and I thought, mm-hmm. she can act. Um, and I... But it was when I phoned Lily and she said, look, I've been sober for two years and I've just been waiting for... They promise you that if you sort of give yourself over to a higher power that something will fall out of the sky and I think this is it. So when someone says that to you, I just thought, you can do it. Because there was a commitment in that. Yeah. There was a belief in that. Yeah. But she rehearsed, Lily rehearsed as if she couldn't do it. Lily rehearsed as if it was the scariest thing ever and that the only thing that was going to happen was that she was going to fail. So she was full of fear, but came at seven and was the last one to leave and just worked and worked and worked and worked because she thought it was such a hard job. Cheryl... When I spoke to Cheryl, and I guess from then I'd just learned to ask the question, do you think you can do it? And if they were said yes, or yes, but I'm terrified, or yes, yes, I do, I think I can, I thought, right, that's all I need to hear. I will get you there. Because then I've got you. Yeah, I'll get you there, you know, because we'll work together. Cheryl rehearsed it as if this is the easiest thing in the world. I've got this, everybody. No one needs to worry. Like, so confident. Wow. So confident. So as soon as we started, I thought, I'll get her in a day early, and I just read it with her and my, my assistant director. She was running around, she got, did all the blocking on her own, and I said, stop, because I want you to do this with the other actors, I want you to find this with the other actors, but she was so keen to sort of know what was in this cupboard and blah, 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 and I, you know, but she was so confident. So, it's, so I guess asking people who've not done it before, to some extent, the circumstances are the same, but, of course, because they're different people, it's also radically different. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, but there was loads of kickback when Cheryl yeah. was cast. And you know what was really interesting was some dickheads put, you know, I saw the original with, with Lily Allen when the cast was full of proper actors. <laughs> I, I thought I could get, go back to tweets, the tweets that I read when we cast Lily. And again, you know, a bit like that one you read out, when, when all the reviews came out for Lily, uh, for Cheryl, I think, I, stupidly at two in the morning... Um, tweeted, she's fucking brilliant, you snobby cunts. Yeah, you did. You did, you did do that. <laughs> um, and again, that's, I think a lot of that is about class. I think a lot of that is about how come this Geordie girl from this estate in Newcastle who was on, you know, and it's. Do you it's, not think it's from, well, there's a lot of trained. Yes. Actresses yes. That, that that could have done that could have played Absolutely that part. Absolutely could have played that part. But the only reason that in every production that I do, there are three trained actors who have got jobs in the West End, is because Lily's in it, mm. or because so it's about the economics, you know. And if you look, if you look back at how we've cast Two Twenty Two, for example, the majority of the actors are my friends, stroke, trusted colleagues that I've worked with before. And one of the things we decided right early on was that all the billing would be the same. I think we do it in alphabetical order. Everyone's photographs the same size. And I love the fact that some of the people who've now got their face and their name in lights in the West End because Cheryl's in it. Mm. You know, so it's, it's economics. 
I've, you know, I'm happiest working with brilliantly trained, um, in tune actors who want to graft. But I'm part of a dynamic where I work in theatres that don't have any subsidy, any funding. So all the all the wages come from ticket sales. So I've got to figure out how to sell tickets. And also, you said it before, you're getting a demographic through the audience who might not necessarily go to the theatre. Yeah, and who might go again. That's the key thing, isn't it? Yeah, and Once take a bigger the... risk and go and see something that hasn't got a, a pop star that they yeah. know or whatever. So it's... Um, they're quite hard to take some of those things. And a couple of times I've, I could tell some young actors so devastated that this opportunity has gone to someone that they can't comprehend as needing it or the casting of that has done any kind of uh, economic or creative good. I've often wanted to, in a friendly way, get in touch and go, look, I'll tell you why we do this stuff. But I think sometimes then you can sort of open up a channel that can... You don't, you don't know what you're opening up then, do you know what I mean? But I, I, have, I do have sympathy for that point of view, but it is about a lack of economic understanding of how commercial theatre works. So when you said you're, you're open now, you're having a bit of downtime, <coughs> the tools are out. Tools are out. Possibly there's a big fence going up. That's why they've got... The, I nearly took half my thumb off of this, the rotary sandies. <laughs> <laughs> when do you go back into the rehearsal room? Um, the Pillow Man's coming this year, so it's I, another um, collaboration with Mark. I've got a few weeks workshopping a big project, big theatre project that I can't talk about, unfortunately, other than to say it's with a Hollywood studio and it's, it's a, to do a stage version of a of a very, very popular film franchise, so that's exciting. That's just a workshop. And then another version of 222, it's going again. It will have been on for more than two years. So, wow. you know, we're employing a lot of people with that show by, by keeping that, that, that thing going and putting the right kind of people in. And also, is it going on, it's gone on tour as well, isn't it? And it's gone on tour, yeah. yeah, at the same time. And then the thing I'm very, very excited about is is the Pillarman, which starts, we start rehearsing on the 1st of May. So I'll be, I'm designing that at the moment, so I'm, I'm deep into that. Well, I'll be along to see it. Uh, Matthew Dunn, so this has been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, it's great. I've done a lot of talking, forgive me. But it no, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Thanks, man. Cheers, mate. And another episode is done. What did I tell you? He's just great great company if you want to catch matthew's work right now you can he has directed sheridan smith in willie russell's shirley valentine try saying that after a few pints of lager that's on in london he's also directing a revival of the brilliant the pillow man by um our favorite writer mr martin mcdonough starring lily allen and Steve Pemberton. Um, that's coming out later in the year. So uh, if you don't know The Pillow Man, yeah, don't read it. Going Cold, it's a spellbinding play. It's um, it's dark and it's funny and um, it's going to set off a few conversations, I promise you. So that's going to be on later in the year in London. Um, on a purely personal note, it was just lovely to sit down with Matthew for an hour or so and see him and, and catch up. He's a lovely guy. He's great, great conversation, as you've just heard. And 
if you ever get a chance to work with them, jump at the chance. It'll change things. He's brilliant. And you'll get really fit because those circuit training classes for five weeks are a killer. Now, next week, I've no idea. I have no idea. Let's see where it takes us. I'll be here. Griff will be here. I hope you'll be here. Until then, keep the messages coming in on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Email twoshotpod at gmail.com. All messages are welcome. Okay, I'm going to go. Until next week, I've been Craig Parkinson. He's been producer Griff. And this has been the Two Shot Podcast. You take care. The Two Shot Podcast was presented by me, Craig Parkinson. Recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. The remix of our theme tune is by Stolen Valor. Cheers. Cheers.